Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and this is the Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Specifically, this is bonus season. So what's bonus season? Well, let me tell you. If you are tardy to the party and just joining us, what we are doing right now is a little different than what you could call our normal. These episodes, this season, are previews, snippets, cutouts, excerpts, sections from David's latest project, Introducing Christian Ethics, which will be available soon. This is his stab at writing his best version of the intro textbook to Christian Ethics. It covers methodology, techniques, difficult subjects, and ethical situations. How to live, how to decide, how to do the work, some examples of some of the sticky issues in Christian ethics. Sticky might be the worst possible word I could use because today we'll be sharing with you the lecture, a section of it with the permission of the publisher, from his discussion on a Christian sexual ethic. This section specifically focuses on the idea of covenant in sexual relations, and uh, covenant's a theme that David has done a lot of work on, something that I'm really excited to share with you, um, is just this section, which honestly includes a list. A lot of this episode is a list, and it's a really good, really important, really valuable list to back up that idea of covenant, what it is, why it matters, why it's so beautiful, why it's so powerful, and why it's such an important tool in Christian ethics. We're glad you're here. This is Kingdom Ethics. For Christian sexual ethics, a good place to begin is by focusing our attention where the Bible does, on the covenant norm of fidelity and the ban on covenant violation, most notably adultery. There is no question that this ban on adultery is the most central biblical moral prohibition in relation to sexuality. Adultery is infidelity to a core covenant promise and obligation in marriage, sexual exclusivity with one's marriage partner. The ban on adultery is, of course, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20:14, Deuteronomy 5:18. When Jesus teaches about sexuality in the Sermon on the Mount, it is this commandment to which he refers. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's 5.27 of Matthew. When a teaching shows up in both the Decalogue and the Sermon on the Mount, we can know it is important. In choosing to name this statement of traditional righteousness, Jesus reaches into the very heart of biblical covenant ethics. More clearly than in the Hebrew Bible, Jesus applies the ban on adultery to both men and women. He demands that men curtail their own eyes and hands, rather than blame women in relation to their illicit sexual desire and behavior. He offers no exceptions to the ban on adultery. I propose that the fundamental norm in in any Christian sexual ethic is covenant fidelity. The first expression of that norm is the ban on adultery. It is notable that amid all the ferment about sexual morality today, hardly anyone seems to be talking about adultery, which destroys many marriages, including Christian ones. Let's briefly review the concept of covenant. A covenant establishes a special relationship between parties. 
It spells out mutual responsibilities intended to create and sustain some type of community. Covenant involves the freely given declaration of promises or even sacred oaths. Permanence is normally an aspect of covenant declarations. Indeed, ensuring stability and commitment is a primary reason for making covenants. Covenants have a contractual dimension, but go beyond contracts in their perceived gravity. God is viewed as the witness and guarantor of biblical covenants, and God stipulates both blessings for covenant fidelity and curses for covenant violation. Genesis 9, Exodus 20, Joshua 24. Biblical covenants repeatedly bind God to Israel, families and tribes to one another, and spouses to each other in marriage. A special feature of biblical covenants is their foundation in the mercy of God. God makes covenant with Israel at Sinai, but only after having delivered the people from Egyptian slavery, Exodus 1 through 15, 21 and 2. Grace precedes covenant, and covenant is itself an expression of God's grace. Covenant is gift before it is task, because we need covenants to flourish. But once a covenant is made, it is both gift and task. This certainly applies to marriage. Faithfulness to covenant is a norm that applies both to our relationship with God and with others. It is clear early in the Bible that covenant faithfulness will be a fundamental requirement for any individual or people that would relate to God. Look at Exodus 23. It is certainly how God relates to us. The Christian tradition has from the beginning claimed that the covenant of marriage is the proper context for the pursuit of full sexual and romantic intimacy and for the birth and nurture of children. This view sometimes has been perceived as frustrating legalism, but it should instead be treated as a gift that takes into account both human potential and human need under conditions of sin. Our powerful sexual energies draw us outside of ourselves toward others. Our intense need to give and receive love does the same. But both drives can do a great deal of harm unless given structure. The covenant of marriage is the structure that Christian scripture and tradition have proposed and to which centuries of human experience bear witness. The marriage covenant's ban on sexual contact with a person other than one's own spouse might seem burdensome to some marriage partners for various reasons spousal illness, unavailability, sexual dissatisfaction, relational conflict, etc. But if God gives covenant as an expression of grace, there must be good reasons for the ban on adultery. I will name three. It deepens the set-apart nature of the bond between the spouses, permitting the highest level of trust, stability, and self-giving. It ensures that any children conceived and born clearly belong to and are the responsibility of the married couple, which is crucial for children's well-being, and it has demonstrably positive effects on sexual satisfaction. This list can be distilled to three main good gifts of sexuality, all of which have received attention in Christian sexual ethics. We can alliterate these three purposes as partnership, procreation, and pleasure. The traditional teaching of Christian sexual ethics is that the marriage covenant, understood as a lifetime commitment, is the only one in which these three purposes of sex can be pursued without fear or harm. 18.3. The New Testament Ban on All Non-Marital Sex The New Testament extends the Old Testament ban on adultery to a ban on easy divorce, to be addressed in the next chapter, and a ban on all non-marital sex. 
This was a considerable addition to the level of rigor in sexual ethics, especially for men, who benefited from wink-and-nod laxity in all three areas, compared to the tight control of girls' and women's sexuality. It is quite clear that both Jesus and Paul posited two acceptable options in relation to sexual intimacy, marriage or celibacy. That's Matthew 19, 1-12 and 1 Corinthians 7. Paul's extended discussion of these matters in 1 Corinthians 7 argues that celibate singleness is a good thing, even preferable to marriage for those who can sublimate their sexual passions for kingdom work, and especially in view of eschatological and missionary urgency. That's 1 Corinthians 7, 1-8, 32-40. Marriage is certainly not wrong, however, that's 736. If married, both spouses owe each other conjugal rights, that is, sexual access, 7-3-5. One reason for this is that the harnessing and ordering of sexual desire is one of the major reasons to get married in the first place, 7-36-38. This combination of the linking of marriage with sex and the ban on extramarital sex helps make it clear that Paul and Jesus really did intend to teach that sexual intercourse outside marriage is not appropriate for a follower of Christ. This restriction would mainly have felt like a tight new constraint on men, who in both Jewish and Greco-Roman culture had access to prostitutes, and who in the Greco-Roman world, and if of sufficiently high wealth, had socially approved sexual access to household servants as well. This cultural background might help us understand the justice dimension of these sexual ethics teachings, and help us separate them from mere legalism. To tell privileged men that they only have sexual access to their one wife, with whom they are in a lifetime covenant, protects wives from being abandoned for other women. It also protects others, male and female, from being sexually exploited, abused, or raped by powerful men. It lowers the risk of children being conceived outside of marriage and then being neglected, abandoned, or killed. It also protects male and female household servants from being gratuitously used and abused by sexually voracious and unconstrained masters. 18.4. Today's Vast Cultural and Normative Changes The cultural leap from that ancient context to most current societies is a large one. Where sexual and marital decisions are genuinely the free choice of both men and women, legal and cultural norms permit sexual intimacy for adults without marriage, and marriage is optional and occurs well after puberty, the entire context for sexual ethics is altered almost beyond recognition. I hasten to add that in many parts of the world such conditions are still not in place, with women's agency very much constrained. But in modernized cultures, feminism's advances, secular values, and economic changes have indeed created vastly altered conditions. What is to become of Christian sexual ethics under these circumstances? What has in fact happened since the 1960s has been a shattering of a single shared norm. Generally, the conservative churches have held to the norm that sex belongs only in marriage, but as authors like Linda K. Klein in her 2019 book Pure and Amber Cantorna in her 2017 memoir Refocusing My Family, have shown, their strategies for teaching it have often produced shame as much as abstinence. Many adult adherents eventually abandon the norm altogether, sometimes leaving the church behind as well. 
One reason is that no matter how powerfully articulated, abstinence norms often fail to constrain sexual behavior once people are in their 20s at least, and the effort can breed shame, leading to considerable resentment against God. A provisional ethic of sex with only the person whom one currently loves, kind of a serial non-marital fidelity ethic, has become a common working sexual ethic among Western Christians. I sometimes call this the loving relationship ethic. It can be seen as a kind of covenantal norm, but it tends to be improvisational, provisional, and uncertain. The advent of modern birth control and loosening of cultural sexual morality standards has also contributed to a safe sex with any consenting adult practice, and in a few church contexts, a corresponding mutual consent safe sex ethic. I know of churches that hand out condoms in the church lobby. One might say that the only covenant here is shared mutuality and safety. This is far better than the exploitation and risk one can find out there in the wasteland of the modern world, but it is a far cry from a covenant norm. If we think in terms of those three key purposes for sex, partnership, procreation, and pleasure, we see that our current moral confusion about sexual ethics impinges on all three. Non-marital, or at least non-covenantal sex, when it risks pregnancy, also risks conceiving children into high-risk situations and or abortion. The desire for trusting intimacy for a true partner will always drive people toward romance novels, British period dramas, and the bedroom, but lack of clarity or shared understanding of the nature of the commitment binding the sexual partners is a recipe for heartbreak. Merely casual, mutual consent sex achieves nothing on the partnership side, it's all risk on the pregnancy side, it may not even bring that much pleasure on the pleasure side. These are some main reasons why I call for the strengthening of a covenantal sexual ethic and a return of a robust theology and practice of marriage. This return to covenantal marriage would be led by Christians with an invitation for others to consider its benefits.